All right. Say hi to Joshua. So, yes, I am about four lessons behind on the audio. Uh, so I'm, I'm cheap, and I haven't bought the SoundCloud full package, so I can only post two at a time. So it's a – anyway, it's a whole – we'll take up a love offering for the SoundCloud. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so <laughs> – all right, let's look at um, – We've gone through, we've gone through seven plagues so far. Uh, the the Nile has turned to blood. Frogs, um, gnats, and and then flies, stinging flies. Incidentally, we stinging flies. We we've had this plague at our house of these paper wasps. Flies like a fly, stings like a bee. Um, so it's they're they're these uh, they're they're wicked little creatures too, and they're everywhere. They don't see them. I, I mean, I got stung twice within five seconds, and I never saw it. And then then we saw one, and my son got stung by it. And anyway, we finally figured out what they were. We're, we're calling them Delta Force bugs. They just can't even see, see them. them. Um, anyway, so they're so the stinging flies is the idea on the. We, what, we had this idea of what if. It was like these things that you can't even see, and they're so fast, and you, you can't. And their land is covered everywhere. with them. Hey, come on in. Hey, come on in. Have a seat. Yeah. Thanks, man. What's your name again? Clay. Clay. Kevin Ryan. Uh, uh, I'm just visiting my dad this weekend. Okay, so. great. Well, good to have you. Good to have you. We're talking about uh, singing flies. Um, we're working through the plagues here. No, it's in it's in Exodus actually. It starts early with the stinging flies. Um, what? Stinging? Did I say did I say singing? So there's a yeah that that would be interesting. Make them stop. Make them stop. Okay. Uh, all right. So then you have cattle. What happened with the cattle? Only the ones in Egypt died, not the ones in Goshen. They had a plague. They had some kind of uh, uh, sickness that came on the cows and the sheep and the mad cow disease was the deal. So they died, but not in the land where Israel was was held. Uh, Then then you have this wonderful scene of, of, of soot from the kiln thrown in the air, turns to fine dust all over the all over the land. And then, and then what happens to everybody? Boils. That's just nasty. Think about that. They couldn't stand before Pharaoh. Somebody said this during that lesson, which I thought was really interesting, that they, that they really they just couldn't stand. It wasn't that they were embarrassed. It was that they physically could not stand. And I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's pretty, pretty uh, awesome. You had boils? <laughs> I don't think acne is the same thing as what we're talking. Although, anyway. So then, so then last last week we talked about hail, H A I L, hail, and um, and and the and the differences there. Uh, Pharaoh still at the end of the hail, it, it, it wipes out everything, right? Except for what? Do you remember? Baby plants. The plants that were still in the ground. That were still in the ground. And so what 
what happened with Pharaoh? What? He almost, um, almost like, repented and acknowledged that God was who he said he was. Except for what? But he trusted in the weeds. He trusted that there was still something in the ground for them to cling to. We'll pull through. I have hope in these remaining plants that Egypt will pull through and I'll somehow be able to outwit this God of the Hebrews. Right? And that's, that's where he is. This hope. The we did not fully come up. Now remember, this is, this is more than just a battle between Israel and Egypt. This is a battle. This is a heavenly kind of battle. This is a, uh, the God of uh, the Hebrews versus the gods of Egypt who are personified in Pharaoh and the elements of nature. This is the, this is the cosmic conflict you have in, in the worldview there. So, all right. That's the idea. Pharaoh has hope. He's got hope. Until chapter 10. Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. And they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old, We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled On the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever 
will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hill had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. All right. What do you do with this? What do we see at the beginning? God talks to Moses and Aaron. And he gives them reasons for these plagues. What are they? Verses 1 and 2. What are the reasons he gives? Morning. Come on in. So that they can tell their sons and grandsons about how powerful God is. Kind of the same thing like the Exodus, where like Joshua conquered the cities. Like they remember generations down, like, oh, these are Israelites. So you get two reasons that are given, right? What's the what's the first reason? That um, that I might that I may show these signs of mine among them. Among them. Who's them? Egyptians. The Egyptians. For what purpose? What does it say? And that you may tell them the hearing of your son and your grandson how to tell parts of the Egyptians. So one is judgment, right? Signs are among them. I've dealt harshly with them because of the hardness of their heart. That's judgment, right? So to show his judgment. Two, what's the other? And that you may know I am the Lord. Just... General Hebrew education. Is that, so they're, they're, they know that he's the Lord. So we'll just say education. Wouldn't that also serve as a warning for future generations, right? Yeah. While they're, while they're telling their kids about it. Absolutely. They're being instructed on the character of the creator. Who God is, what he has done. In one instance, his character will uh, give judgment to those who are hardened of heart and rebellious. And that does serve as a warning to Israel later because they are hardened and do get judged. Um, and then second is, who is this happening to? The Egyptians. Is it happening to Israel? Is it happening to the, to the people in the land of Goshen? It's like a foreshadow of the gospel. That's what I'm talking about. Tell me how so. Because... Pre-Christ, the only nation that knew about God was Israel. But Mostly. Generally, yes. Generally, yes. I mean, with this being the exception. In the Yahweh sense. Okay. In the covenantal sense. But this is, is like, this is knowledge, not only knowing, hey, there's a God out there, but knowing his character, seeing his faithfulness, sticking to his word, his judgment. So, more of God is revealed in this situation. Then we knew. I mean, the creation knows God is judge, 
Look at the third of the angels that fell. They were judged. You know God's holiness. You know his judgment. We're seeing that here. But here we have an additional element of God's character being shown, don't we? What is it? What, what is the benefit of know that you may know that I am the Lord? What, what is, what's going on here? The, the, the Egyptians know, but they know him as judge. Relationship. Relationship, and yes, in what way? Well, like, you see the stuff that he can do in his power, and you respect that. So, I mean, you're going to want to serve him. You're going to want to serve him, and he shows you what? Lordship and mercy. So there's there's mercy, and then out of that comes obedience to to follow. Yes. So there you have a full orb view of who God is. He's both holy, judge, righteous, but he's also gracious, merciful, and loving. You, you see all of that here. Okay. So you see those two reasons, and these are these are uh, this this idea of educating the Hebrews and their children. Uh, regarding the character of God, you see that later in, in for example, uh, in Exodus 18, when, when Moses tells Jethro, his father in Jethro, I love that, as a father-in-law. How would you like that? Anyway, uh, he tells Jethro about what happened. And Jethro, the polytheistic priest, says, now I know that the Lord is, is God. He becomes a monotheist based upon the testimony of Moses about what happened in Egypt. Yeah? Couldn't couldn't this also mean in the you know knowing the Lord your God in a salvific sense? Because when uh, when Moses leads the Egyptians out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, don't a lot of the Egyptians go with them? So yes. They, is there a possibility that they actually become saved and take on the Jewish? I absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, there, so there's. This could be for some of them, meaning in a salvific sense. It, sure, certainly, certainly, but but for the large part of the Egyptians. This is this is judgment. There is a remnant of Egypt, which is an interesting term that we may explore later. A remnant of Egyptians that go with the Israelites out to Canaan. They they become, I guess, uh, sojourners with them. I don't know. They, the, like <laughs> they did. They grew beards. They walked like <laughs> you have to show me what that looks like sometime. Um, so Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and confront him. How does he confront him? Verse 3, what does he say to him? Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews. Right? What? How yes, long will you refuse to humble yourself before How long will you refuse to humble yourself? He rebukes him. He rebukes Pharaoh for his What? Hardness of heart and pride. Now notice the contrast. You guys need some, some Bibles? Okay, that, I thought that might be helpful. I, yeah, thanks. Sorry, there are two different versions. And there's cake. And then we have... Okay. Um, notice the contrast here between Pharaoh's pride, and then later we'll see in, in Numbers 12.3, well... If the Lord tarries and I live this long, we get to numbers. Um, you'll see, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. So you have in front, in one audience, the symbol of pride and rebellion against God being confronted by a man testified in the scripture as being the most humble and meek of all on the earth. I just think that's ironic. 
Pharaoh kind of falsely plays the role of being humble, though, doesn't he? I mean, he's done this before. Oh, I've sinned. Oh, what was me? Claudius. He, he, he has this whole dramatic thing that he does to try to, to, to get his way. Um, he's tofu. Um, he's claiming to be a sinner, but it's a pretense to get what he wants. He, 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 and there's an irony here as well. As in Exodus 1... Uh, 11 through 12, Pharaoh attempts to humble the Hebrews with taskmasters. So how long will, how long will it be till you get humbled because you've been trying to humble my people? You see, there's it's kind of what comes, comes back on him. Um, and then he tells them of the locusts. Why is that a scary thing? The locusts. They don't have much food left. What is their economy based on? Growing things and eating them, uh, they've already lost their their meat. And if they ever hope to get more meat, they need things for the meat to eat on. And they also need um, the the vegetation for themselves. So locusts are a particularly fearsome thing for for primarily agrarian society. Um, theologically, uh, there's some things here. Um, the the uh, the Egyptians generally thought that the, all the gods protected them from what they called grasshoppers. This was a, this was a this was a, a a duty a theistic duty to protect the Egyptians from grasshoppers. I mean, think about putting that on your you know. <clears throat> in fact, they had one minor deity in particular who was that's his whole job is to protect them from pests. Um, at our house. We, we've had we've had some some a little bit of a success with some zucchinis, until we had um, a pest. We found a caterpillar. It was as big as mine. It's as big as it like this caterpillar. Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember? Did, do you remember? Day seven. Do you all remember um, um, uh, Bugs Life? Yeah. Ha- Hamlet. Yeah, that. <laughs> that was. And my wings, I could, from up here you look like little ants, you know. He, this sucker was. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm holding him like this. What was fun though is taking that big old caterpillar out to the chicken pen. He had his revenge. Just watching popcorn. We had a good time. It's, great. it's like the gladiators, you know. Chickens grabbing worms. It's okay. It's judgment. Judgment. Morning. So you have um, you have this fear realized, and not only is it a bad thing that they're get, that the that the grasshoppers or the locusts are coming, uh, and not only is it showing that their minor deities and their whole panoply of gods in general are are worthless because they're not protecting them from the grasshoppers, you have them covering the land and look at the language. Good grief, the language to cover. Do we do we see this before uh, with the frogs? Remember the frogs that covered the land, jumping into the bread bowls, jumping into the hair, being squished and nasty everywhere. Then the gnats covering the 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 singing flies covering, and now you have these locusts that cover it so much that the land is what dark. Dark from locusts. Think of that. 
Um, now, John the Baptist may like that because he used to eat those things, but, but generally, that's not a good thing. This idea of to cover uh, conveys an overabundance. We see it, uh, the same word used of the quail that God brings in the desert for the, uh, for the uh, Israelites later on. Um, you'll have it uh, eventually. The Egyptian army is covered by water. So, good or bad, it's a lot. So much so that the, the place is darkened. So, what are these locusts going to eat? Everything, else. everything that's green. Makes me wonder if is I don't I don't really see if it ever says anywhere that these were immediately like from day to day or if there were a little there was a little time in between. Yeah, I was the, wondering about that too. If there was time for hope to spring up the plants, with the the plants growing. I would think it'd have to have to have a little time for him to have a little hope. That will be dashed against the rocks well, of locusts. That, that, that seems to, I mean, it seems like if they were back to back to back, I mean, Pharaoh was irrational anyway, but it seemed like he would have to be extremely irrational to, to forget what had just happened. And, and maybe there's some delay that gives him but some hope. Maybe it's over now. Maybe we're done. And then... Oh wait, what's that black cloud coming from the east? Um, so you have this this hope that's being eaten away by the locusts. It's gone, literally. Can you imagine though all the locust shells that you can collect the next day? Because I was a kid, I loved those Collecting like berries? No. You don't harvest those? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think generally if you stay if your mindset stays in the sixth grade every time you see one of those you're thinking can I put this on a girl's hair you know it's, it's always lots of fun okay Tammy would kill me um, so what does Moses point to in comparing this locust plague with maybe other swarms of locusts that have come before what what does he what does he say to look to Who never saw this before? Fathers and grandfathers. Do you find it interesting that Moses points to the glory days of Egypt here uh, and points to the future of Israel at the beginning? You see the comparison there? Egypt is finished. It never rises as a as a world as a predominant. It's always a, a wannabe world power from this point forward. Um, I'm not saying it's not powerful later, but it is. It's a wannabe. Um, trying to kind of like Russia. Um, so you have this uh, look to what you thought, what you're living in, the glory days of of Egypt. They've never seen anything like this. And here at the end of your glory, I'm doing this. Your hope is gone. You won't recover from this. And yet with Israel, it's, you know, remember it in, in your deliverance, in, your, um, in, 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 in when I take you to the promised land. Remember this, your children and your children's children. So there's a future hope for Israel and a, and a, a death of hope for um, Egypt. There, 
why would you cling to a country, a people whose glory is gone and they're and they have no future, and not run to the rising hopeful people? I mean, you see the comparison. The world is dying. The temporal things are dying. The eternal God is granting blessing and hope in his people. And yet, why would you cling to what's temporary and fading versus what's eternal and glorious? I think it's the idea here. The elemental principles of the world are not according to Christ. Paul talks about Colossians 2. There's a, there's a big comparison. What uh, after, after Moses gives this audience, tells him what's going to happen, let them go, or locusts are coming. Does he give him time to respond? Just leaves. Why do you think that is? As God has proven himself faithful, Pharaoh has proven himself hardened. <clears throat> he knows what's going to happen. Why does he know what's going to happen? How does he know that Pharaoh's not going to let them go? God told him. And he's been pretty accurate so far. Um, you know, sometimes uh, th- there, there comes a time when dialogue with a hardened unbeliever just needs to stop. You, you, you've laid out the gospel, you've prayed for them, you, you've engaged in it, and it's just at a point where it just needs to stop because it's, they're set, they're not changing, um, not saying that God won't change them later, but as for as for your efforts, um, it's best to. There's a verse in Proverbs: "Answer a fool according to his folly; don't answer a fool according to his folly." And I think that's basically Moses is working that out here. So Moses leaves. Uh, I would think with a little bit of flair, and then what happens? Somebody else has an audience with Pharaoh. Who? The servants do. And what do they say to him? You must be stupid, stupid, stupid. What, what, what do they say? How long shall this man be a snare to us? Notice the question. The language used is the same that, that Moses used to Pharaoh at the beginning. How long will you not let the people go? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before the Lord? But their how long is a little different. Is that a statement of awe and reverence toward the man of God? Do they use his name? How long will this one, this man... Were they talking about Moses or God? I think they're talking about Moses. I think it's talking about Moses. Do they, do they um, show signs of repentance here? They went out of the box that they're in. How do we make this go away? Let's cut a deal. Um, they don't relent fully. Uh, who do they instruct Pharaoh? Notice this, by the way. They're calling to question their Pharaoh, the one they believe is God. <clears throat> How long will you let him be? They're questioning his leadership. Here is the soul of justice, righteousness, and perfection on earth, Pharaoh, and now they're questioning his leadership. 
They're doubting his ability to get them out of this. And they advise him to do what? Let the men go. Is that what God had told him? Everybody. So what does Pharaoh do? Um, he he brings them back. He brings Moses and Aaron back. And he says to them, go serve the Lord. He commands them. He's still acting like he's in control. Go serve the Lord. And then he does a little bit of a question. Now, now who's going with you again? This is only, what, the eighth time? Uh, who's going with you again? He tries to ascertain who is going and wants to negotiate a limit on that. Why would he want to do that? Moses never says they're coming back, right? And he's probably picked up on that a little bit. So what is he basically doing? He's trying to hold their families and their livestock hostage, as if the families were enough. They also have livestock. I was thinking that Pharaoh is still trying to like show that he's in power like that. Did you say you want to go, everybody? Okay, well, your men can go. But... I, think, I think there's both, both of those are, are, are in operation here. You're right. It, it's, he's trying to show he's in control by limiting what God has said. And he's also trying to, to, to keep a hook in them so they'll come back and still be slaves. Um, but what does Moses respond? What does he say they have to go do in the wilderness? Hold a feast. Hold a feast. What feast is he talking about? What, <laughs> what, what feast will happen in the wilderness? What feast will they be will they be uh, celebrating, or what initiates their going into the world? Maybe the idea is the feast will be Passover. Ultimately, that's the first feast they have as a nation going out. How ironic! What's what causes the Passover? The death of all firstborns. So they're telling him we're going to have a feast, <laughs> and it's pre-shadow or foreshadowing, pre-shadowing, the time before the shadow. Foreshadowing, uh, foreshadowing. Thank you, sir. Uh, the 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 Passover, the death of the firstborn. So, what does he say in verse ten? I don't get this. He says, um, "The Lord be with you." What does he mean by this? The Lord be with you if I ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. The Lord be with you if I ever let. Your little ones go. What is he saying there? Maybe. Kind of like a mafia, you know, leader saying, "God better be with you." <laughs> I don't know. That's what it sounds like to me. It's it like, sounds like, like I'm going to come after you. I don't believe in this deity of yours. And the only way that I'll know that he exists is if I let your little ones go. The Lord would be with you. The Lord be with you if I let your little ones go, is what he's saying. And then he says something. Yeah, go ahead. Is this Moses talking or Pharaoh talking? That's Pharaoh. Okay. That's Pharaoh. Because it just says he said. Right. So Moses is speaking and he ends with the Lord. And then it says, but he said to them, Mm -hmm. the Lord be with you. If I let your little ones go. What translation do you have? ESV. 
Yeah, because the NIV replaces it with para, the pronoun. <clears throat> but then he says something else. This evil before your face, this um, you have some evil purpose in mind. Another, another way to say that is evil before your face. Now what's interesting there is that the, the word for Hebrew, or for evil, is a Hebrew <laughs> word. <laughs> it's Hebrew! Hey! Um, is, is a Hebraized word for uh, for Ra, for evil, is, is, is they take the word for the, the big deity in Egypt, Ra, and that's evil. So in the translation, Pharaoh is saying there is Ra, or the derivative of it, before your face. Now he's meaning you've got, a, you've got an evil purpose, but if you read it, it's ironic because literally evil is before their face. Because you know, he's supposed to be the embodiment of Ra, right? So it's just kind of a thing. It's kind of a thing. Uh, all right. No games. Look at 12 verses 15 through 15. What happens? Any kind of uh, reprieve, any kind of, hey, let's think about this. Just go straight into it. Just happens. An east wind comes. And, it, and an east wind, generally in Scripture from this point forward, is, is a sign of the judgment, the coming judgment of God. You see this again and again. Um, what, what comes? A dense swarm, uh, literally very heavy, We've seen before these terms of heaviness coming down on Egypt is a is a pure is a picture a mirror picture of Pharaoh's heart right so you have the plague coming down looking like Pharaoh's darkened heart and it's in such great numbers you can't see the land you walk to Walmart and you're crunching all the way watching your crops go being eaten away there's not there's no way you can you know seven dust them. It's not going to happen. Um, there's so many. It's gone. Everything is gone. Hope is gone. And then Pharaoh does this thing. How does it describe Pharaoh's response? What's his demeanor here in Moralistic, 16 through 20? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Did you read that? <laughs> what? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a term that was like a philosopher did, and then Michael Horton made it real popular. That's the... the Christian or Christians these days, their views just use a moralistic therapeutic deism where they want to believe in God so that life, their life will be better. So they have your best life now. Yeah. yeah. That's what Pharaoh does here. Like, and what? This and and he does it slowly. It's kind of a hey, let's take our time. Call him next week. What does he do? What does that show? <clears throat> He's Fear? Slowly, yeah. Desperation? Go ahead. He's slowly connecting the dots. <laughs> he's slowly? He's thick, he's thick, this Pharaoh. He's, he's, he's coming to terms with the fact that I've got to deal with this quickly. Hope is gone. He's desperate. He, he admits his sin against God and the prophets, but he does not admit his guilt for his treatment against the Hebrews. Forgive me this one time only. I've sinned against you, God, and you, Moses, and Aaron. But he doesn't say, I've sinned against the people of Israel at all. He, he, he's... Why is he confessing like this? Why is this God-man confessing like this? 
Yeah, is this true repentance here? If you just get me out of this, God, I'll serve you. Is that what this is? Every time he kind of sort of apologizes or shows guilt, it's just enough to still stay in control and just get a reprieve so that he can get his pride and get full strong again so that he can... And that's what he's done every time. It's just yep. enough. To and the very next time, he, his heart's still hard. He just wants his stuff removed. He wants a little bit of hope. If they're, if they're gone now, maybe there's something green left. It's not true repentance. It's not true humility. It's, not, it's, a, it's an act. But you know what? I think it's interesting that Moses went out and pleaded mm-hmm. on behalf of Pharaoh. And, and I, think, um, I think sometimes it's easy for us to say, well, they'll never come around. When we see people that seem to keep proving that maybe they were never in Christ in the first place mm-hmm. by the way they're living, and yet you kind of go through these cycles. And then I think we need to be reminded that we need to be like Moses and still plead for them. Because he doesn't engage know, in conversation I mean, with them. Pharaoh is not ultimately saved, but sure. we don't know what the right. outcome is. Sure. But he doesn't engage in any discussion with him. He just, here's what he says, and he goes away from him, outside of his presence, and, and pleads with the Lord on Pharaoh's behalf. Kevin, if, if this was true repentance, you'd think he'd actually pray to God. He would, he would say, okay, and push all these people away from him and actually you know, pray to God. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think Ted's right. He's crying uncle. I mean, it is, mm-hmm. he's, he's responding to the consequences of his sin. When his own people come to him and say, hey, this is what we need to do, he's like, okay, you know. He's, he's responding to his own people. Right. And because the locusts ate everything else that the hail didn't destroy, mm-hmm. he's got nothing left. He's got no reserves, nothing to... When he says, take this death from me, what do you think he's referring to? His people are already showing that they're not confident in his leadership. What's the next step? Rebellion. What happens to deposed leaders? They moved to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> the Delta aside, do what, what, where, what happens to him? He's, he's facing death here from his own people. They're going to kill their God <laughs> because he's not protecting them. He's not leading them well. Yeah, probably so. That's a wicked thing to think about. (laughs) Take this death from me. And so Moses prays outside the presence of Pharaoh, and there's a miracle done. What's the miracle? What's the miracle? We've got an east wind bringing in locusts. What happens? The west wind takes it out. It changes the course of the wind. Sound familiar? Anyone else we know of that changes the wind? Commands the wind? Jesus. Always a good answer in Sunday school. The Holy Spirit. Yes. Also a good answer in Sunday school. Moses does it again when he parts the Red Sea. I'm guessing that's why we do that. Well, I was, I was looking at this and I thought it was... I'm, I'm going to guess that saying a west wind, maybe that means that it's coming from the west? I would think so. Well, see, my assumption at first was, I was like, okay, well, if it's a west wind, if it's blowing west, it's not blowing toward the Red Sea at all. It's 
flowing toward like Tunisia or whatever. But I mean, I guess it would have to be like coming from the west. Hey, a bit of trivia um, over the Sahara. The wind always blows from east to west, mm -hmm. and so the Sahara is expanding by four miles per year. So it's as if it always blows from east to west. So when the locusts come, it, it accelerates probably that uh, right. that expansion. But for it to blow from west to east is is a big deal. Reversible. Yeah. Reversible. So um, how, how many remained? What what remained? How how many of the locusts remained first? What's that? <laughs> Not a single one. Okay, sorry, I'm old. I hear you. Um, what did remain? Verse twenty. Shells. Shells. <laughs> Stop with the shells. What did remain? Pharaoh's hardened heart. Even after this, even after the threat of revolt of his own people, he still hardened against God. Without hope, he still hardened. Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that you were at that time alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Locusts often in, in Scripture are pictured as a, as, a, as a fierce judgment. You see it even in Revelation um, in chapter 9, 3 through 5, there's this hopelessness without mercy. These things don't eat the land. They don't eat vegetation. They torment human beings without hope. They don't kill them. There's not even the hope of death to stop it. They continue to torment them. Uh, there's a picture of hopelessness there in judgment. Um, turn to Joel 2. Seven. Joel 2. Turn right, keep going until you see Joel. If you hit Amos, you've gone too far. Uh, chapter 2. trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through all the years of, uh, through all, through the years of all generations. Um, and I'm trying to find it, I had it earlier this morning, I can't, there's locusts in here. Yes. There it is. Wait. Look at nine. Yeah. Ah, chapter one, verse four. That's what I'm thinking of. All right. When the okay. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, because I can't hear because they're elders. All inhabitants of the land, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children. 
and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust. There's utter hopelessness here. You've got all these different types of hope killers, right? And Joel has this devastation picture using the theme of locusts that you saw in Exodus. But then he says, uh, in, in chapter 2, 25, verse 30, uh, for, chapter 2, verse 25 through 30, there's this picture, again, of restoration. 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God. There is none else and my people shall never be put to shame again. Why, why is that? Why, how is God able to restore what hopelessness has left behind? Always a good answer. What does he say in the next verse? Do you remember this verse, Joel 2, 28? And it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Who says that? Who re- where is this referenced again? Acts. Acts. In what context? Pentecost. God pours out his spirit. You see, they go out into the streets, and they call them drunks, and they... Peter stands up, this man who's very timid and got scared in front of a little girl, preaches in front of all of Jerusalem, and 3,000 are saved that day. Hopelessness is, hopefulness is restored through the pouring of God's Spirit. How does that happen? Why did God pour out His Spirit? What's the precursing event? Always a good answer. Isaiah... 53. I thought this was incredibly interesting. And in two minutes, I hope to convey it. Isaiah 53. If I can find it. Oh, wait, here it is. I've got it marked. 53, verse 2 says, For he, who's he? Always a good answer in Sunday school. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry, uh, out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So you have this tender plant, this young person, uh, this man, who's, who's viewed as a tender plant, all right? Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? You have hopelessness for this man. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Crush, plague, same word. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. Hope out of the crushing from the plague. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his anguish of his soul, that's hopelessness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's hopelessness. And yet by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, 
because he poured out his soul to death, hopelessness, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Hope out of hopelessness. It's, a, it's the cross. Christ takes the locust, takes the hopelessness upon himself. The judgment we deserve takes it upon himself. And, the, and, and what does he say? How is this pouring out of my spirit? How does that happen? Well, remember what Jesus said in John 16, 7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. We cling to the little things that are hope. The temporary stuff. We cling to it. And, and ultimately they are shown to be devoured. They, they, they devour us. What we treasure, what we idolize, what we set up as gods in our heart devours us. And yet in Christ, he restores hope. He restores uh, the, the, the future by pouring out his spirit. All temporary stuff is going to be eaten away. You either have Christ or you don't. You're left with nothing or you have hope of a future in Christ. Having no hope in the world, uh, he, he says in Ephesians, he goes on to say, I'm trying to, um, but you who once were far off were brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, um, and making peace by the blood of his cross. Um, you, you see this, this reconciliation in Christ from what was hopeless to being hopeful um, through the Spirit. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And what do we place our hope? The stuff that maybe possibly could pan out or in the true hope of Christ. Okay, any questions? Because I'm running late again. I, I was just going to say, I think with that thing that you started with, everyone will know God in one way. You'll either know him as judge or you'll know him. And I think that education... It's good, but it also is more of the idea of not just reading a biography about somebody, right. but spending time with somebody and knowing them in that sense. Right. And, and knowing, knowing his character and who he is. Knowing him that way is, is the way that leads to salvation versus we, if you don't know him that way, you will know him. Right. Will be this is not meant to be merely academic education. Yeah, I know, but I mean, the knowing knowing God in Scripture talks about in, in relational. He means relationally covenantal, the idea. And so, look at here. Look what He's done for for you. What He's done in Christ, and know Him in Christ that way in mercy, and, and grace. I think I think is the. Any any, any other comments? Yes. Sir. One thing that really struck me was. Uh, how Pharaoh is is reacting to the consequences, and I can't help but look in my life and see how I I, I do Joel Osteen. I do want my best life now, mm-hmm. and so it's like, am I really? Do I really love God and respect Him and His Word, or do I just want a good life? Do mm-hmm. I just want to, you know, fit in a church or or whatever? And it, that kind of it kind of pricked me this morning. I think we all do that. I think we all want good things, comfort, and 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 stuff. Now we want to we want to live the way we want to live, and yet and yet appear to be good people. 
God calls us to better. He calls us to holiness and righteousness. And um, our lives show whether or not we're in him. Our faithfulness to what he's called us to shows is his spirit, has his spirit been poured out on you? Because what happens with the spirit? The spirit transforms us, right? We have the character that we learn about becomes our character, slowly, surely, not perfectly, but it continues. It's a growth thing. It's either there or it's not. If it's not, then, then we're here and we need to repent, really repent, not, not just, I don't want the consequences, but to know him. Um, okay, it's 10.15, which is weird because we started it way early, too, so I don't know how that happened. Yeah, Tammy's gloating. All right, I'm going to pray. <clears throat> Father, what a humbling thing it is to think of the uh, little things that we cling to and hope in the face of your offer of free grace. How sad it is that our hearts gravitate to things that are wisps and dying grass when you've given us your spirit, when you've sent your son. I pray that your spirit would draw us closer to yourself. Let us know you and the one whom you sent. That's eternal life as defined in John 17. It's to know you. And so we pray to know you better. We pray that not only... Uh, we, would we be academic and have a, a head knowledge of you but God these things have to affect our hearts we have to change how we live because of our understanding of who you are and what you've revealed in scripture if we're not changing we don't really know you and so we ask for your spirit to be working in us as we are working that um, we are confronted by the sinful aspects that are still in our lives and humble ourselves before you, not bow up in pride, not cling to things that die and are temporary, but run to the eternal, run to Christ again and again. Let us fall at his feet and thank him for the mercy that you've shown uh, through him at the cross and how you're continuing to grow us in grace. Thank you for those who are in this class, and, and I pray that not only would we have faith in Christ, but also a love for one another, a love for all the saints. Grow in that. Build each other up that way. In Jesus' name, amen.